This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Hello, and welcome to Beltway Banthas, your source for Star Wars and politics news and analysis from our nation's very own hive of scum and villainy, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Suara Saleh. And I'm your host, Abby Gleason. And today we'll be discussing one of the most underrated and frankly amazing characters of the Star Wars universe, the esteemed senator and viceroy himself, Bail Organa. This guy hasn't had the most screen time necessarily, but he has such a deep, great place in so many Star Wars fans' hearts, including mine and Abby's. He's been such an inspiration from the limited time he's had, and I just have loved this character so much. I'm so excited for this topic, Abby. Me too. I know that you and I have kind of been talking about Bail privately for a long time, so I'm really excited to actually have a conversation with you that other people can, you know, comment and join on in with. Um, I love Bail Organa so much, so I'm very excited about this. I'm so excited about this, too. I've loved this character since I was a kid, Uh, even though I don't really like the prequels much anymore. Like still one of my favorite parts from them always is Bail Organa and the amazing example that he's been able to set. Uh, And, you know, I feel like he provides a lot of lessons for us today in our own politics. So I'm excited to dig into that. Before we start our main topic, I just want to discuss uh, some Star Wars and political news recently. So first off, let's do the fun stuff. Uh, Star Wars news and We had Donald Glover, who's playing Lando in the upcoming Solo Star Wars story coming out May 25th. He was on SNL as both his self, uh, Donald Glover, and as his musical persona, Childish Gambino. And uh, Abby, did you have a chance to watch uh, the clips from the show? I did. I watched them uh, the next day because that's way too late for me to stay up because uh, I'm Same. really, I, I may be 23, but I'm an 85 year old on the inside. Um, <laughs> but I absolutely adored them. Donald Glover has such a wonderful presence and it was really exciting to see, um, him debut his new songs as childish Gambino. So it was really great. Yeah, and it was such a powerful song as well. Like, he debuted it on the show SNL, like, with a live performance, one of his two songs. But he also released the music video for it during the uh, actual airing of SNL. Did you, you caught the video, right? I did, I did, and it's phenomenal. So good. It's like, you know, basically he's addressing gun violence in America through this sort of absurdist, uh, like a uh, scene like throughout and it's yeah if you haven't ha- seen this video yet listeners we highly recommend it mm-hmm. yeah no it's just like but also on snl he had this really great sketch uh where it was him and a couple of other black star wars characters where <laughs> they're giving out awards to each other but there are barely any of them in there because star wars has such a terrible track record with representation and i just 
kind of really love that he was able to go there, how he was basically able to roast Lucasfilm for their lack of diversity and representation. <laughs> Me too. I felt like he was speaking directly to everybody involved with hashtag Star Wars Rep Matters, because I mean, this is stuff that we have been screaming about for years. And now all of a sudden, like, here is a Star Wars actor calling you out on your BS. It was was so good. And like, I, I'm really impressed with the fact that he was, you know, obviously he was like joking. It wasn't Mm -hmm. like he was necessarily like roasting Lucasfilm or calling out Kathleen Kennedy or any of the casting directors or anything like that. But still he was calling out the problematic aspect of the severe lack of representation for marginalized groups in the galaxy far, far away, at least until now, you know, we're doing so much better with the sequel trilogy, especially with the cast that we have for uh, force awakens, last Jedi, um, obviously episode nine rogue one. And now even with his film solo. So, you know, we've definitely made progress. Uh, there's just like still a lot more left to do. You know, it's not like you just check off a couple of marks and you're like, Hey, we solved uh, the problem of lack of diversity. Yay. We can move on. No, it's like, it's a sustained effort because there are so many different groups out there. And like he was pointing out in his sketch, there are barely any black people in galaxy far, far away. Like I think there were only three of them in that sketch. And, I, rem- I think it was, uh, yeah, Keenan Thompson playing Saw Guerrera. He mm-hmm. was calling out, oh, what about Mace Windu? Or no, sorry, he said, uh, and we need to give a shout out to the uh, black actors in the prequel trilogy. And he just said, Mace Windu. And that was it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and the fact that they kind of had to uh, create a black female character for the sketch kind of says a lot. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I And, you know, for Star Wars Rep Matters, this was one of the um, areas we were talking about, or like for one month, the severe lack of black women, mm-hmm. you know, like um, it's really galling when you just like look at in general the track rate. But, you know, thankfully we're getting Val in Solo. Yes. So th- played by Thandie Newton. She looks amazing. Uh, also, as we were talking about in the last episode, you're really excited for Solo, right? I am very excited for Solo. Like almost obnoxiously yeah. so at this point. <laughs> <laughs> you're just annoying all of the uh, dude bros on Twitter who are like, oh, I'm boycotting this. This isn't my Star Wars. I feel like you that's know, just like, my job is- in general is annoying dude bros on Twitter. <laughs> that is my that's my title that is my twitter title annoying and, dude bros and you, yeah and you know i love you for it it's just like <laughs> so great but it's like i actually saw uh something about solo how it's already outpacing black panther in terms of pre ticket sales and i'm honestly like really surprised by this i'm someone who has um not like a, you know, toxic dude, bro, but legit, you know, I've been, uh, somewhat down on solo. Like when I was first announced, um, because I guess it wasn't really what I wanted to see. And like, I was actually kind of disappointed by the lack of Lauren Miller, but I will, but please color me impressed by, um, how well it's doing. And my perceived lack of its marketing actually isn't that much of a problem. And I'm really happy for it. Yeah. And I mean, don't get me wrong. When they first announced Solo, I wanted nothing to do with it. This excitement for it is really new for me. (laughs) And it kind of (laughs) was something that's manifested over the past couple of of months, really. Um, But yeah, I was amazed that it had that it's doing so well in pre-sales already. Um, And that it's outpacing Black Panther. That was really surprising. 
Yeah, seriously. I mean, it just shows the power of the Star Wars brand mm-hmm. across like uh, any platform, across any sort of media. And I literally feel like, I'm just going to say it, they're basically pulling a Beyonce with Solo where (laughs) they can just drop an album or drop a movie and people will rush to go see it because the name is so famous and people love it. Yeah, I remember before The Last Jedi came out and people were like, where's the trailer? And um, sometime in an interview with Adam Driver, he was like, they could probably never put out a trailer for a Star Wars movie again, and they would still get the numbers. They would still get people oh, in this totally. Case. Yeah, it's like, you know, I, I think it, in the where we are right now, I definitely feel that, but I don't think that's a sustainable strategy going oh, forward. <laughs> of, you know, like just like any other franchise, you still need uh, the media hype going into it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can't, and just rely on, you know, the famous name of Star Wars to sustain it throughout. And it, like what I appreciate about The Last Jedi is that it felt like a soft reboot of Star Wars in a lot of ways that it was doing new and dynamic stuff. And in my opinion, had a really great marketing campaign that, you know, definitely kept the spoilers from anyone. So mm-hmm. I really appreciated that. And yeah, I'm you know, I'm looking forward to Solo. It'll be a fun palate cleanser after the online, quote, discourse about The Last Jedi. I think we could all use that. And yeah, I'm excited. Me too. So let's get into some political news now. Uh, so I don't know if you saw this, but last week, so Rudy, so Rudy Giuliani, uh, still a member of the Trump team, went on to Sean Hannity. And when asked a question about something completely unrelated, he splurged out admitting that the Trump campaign or Trump himself laundered money through Michael Cohen. So Giuliani admitted to Hannity that Trump paid Cohen $130,000 to reimburse him for the settlement he had with porn star Stormy Daniels, despite Trump's assertion last month that he was unaware of any such payment. This is actually really insane because apparently this can constitute as a violation of campaign finance laws because it is still money that's used in the campaign. And with the amount of lies and like sheer untruths that have been going around with this administration, it's just like the latest case and it's the latest absurdity really like for like one of his quote closest advisors to just like blurt this out on oh, <laughs> like, yeah. yeah did he what do you think of this news i mean it's just it's unbelievable how easy it is for people to just be like oh yeah by the way here's this really big issue and i'm just gonna drop it and then pretend like it's really not a big issue um and, and, and the fact that they're still kind of trying to push this as a, well, he, Trump didn't know. Trump had no idea. Um, he, a couple of days ago, he put out a number of tweets that definitely were not written by him because they sounded, <laughs> they they use way too much legalese for it to be ever written by him. Um, right. And it kind of reasserted the idea that this, this uh, $130,000 was a private agreement but if Cohen was paying off Daniel so that the scandal wouldn't hurt the campaign, then he basically made a loan to the campaign. 
He made a gift to the campaign and an excessive one at that. And it's considered a loan until it's paid off. And it was. So then you kind of have another problem of it needing to be something that was listed as a loan to the Trump campaign, which it was not. So it's just like one big issue after the other, after the other, after the other. And tons of lying. (laughs) Absolutely. But more particularly with Michael Cohen and... Overall, what I've noticed the past month, the crimes associated at the state level in New York, Trump and his allies seem to be much more scared by that than they are by anything at the federal level or Mm -hmm. anything really having to do with Russian interference in the election. You know, there's something there that the Trump uh, campaign and Trump himself was up to on the state level that Cohen was obviously very deeply involved in. You know, and obviously we're talking about this from a case of uh, a payment made during the campaign to a porn star. These are the political news of the days, ladies (laughs) and gentlemen. Like, uh, I don't we don't make the rules. Uh, But still, it's like there have been so many stories recently about Cohen being involved in these uh, potential crimes and he didn't show up to his court hearing one time. And he instead like hat went to a courtyard with some of his friends, like discussing something. There were these weird pictures that came out a few weeks ago and it's just, you know, beyond just being shameful, it is also just really weird. Agreed. Oh, agreed. I mean, I can't, I'm too young to kind of remember some of like the huge political scandals of the late nineties and the early two thousands. So this is all kind of new for me. Um, Mm -hmm. and the fact that, I mean, you know, I grew up for the most part within the Bush presidency, but really in terms of politics within the Obama presidency. And so having just like this thing that should be scandal after scandal after scandal, but like, people are kind of taking it as a, eh, yeah, it's just another day in America is, is yeah. very, very strange. It's strange in that, you know, and I think this is a larger conversation about social media. I was mm-hmm. actually at a love it or leave it um, show in Baltimore on Saturday night. And the topic was about social media and the panelists were saying that, It is actually overall really the same, the sort of news that we consume and the scandals, you know, of the uh, administration of the day. What's different now is that because of social media, we're so hyper focused on it day to day. We're still getting the same amount of news relatively, Mm -hmm. but our attention span is so fleeting because of the sheer amounts that we're getting through Twitter, through Facebook, through uh, other sources, through our smartphones. Mm -hmm. So I think that we need to keep that relatively in perspective and know that, you know, times are definitely like crazier than they've been before. You know, there's so many scholars I've listened to and read who have said that, hey, this is actually like a fever point of potential crisis for our country. Absolutely. With this administration, But we have to remember that the sheer volume of news that we consume is relatively the same. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. It's a good thing to keep in mind, too, of like we are not made to process all of this news at once, but we are doing it anyway. Exactly. So moving on from that stressful stuff, let's move on to our main topic. We will be discussing the senator and viceroy of the wonderful, amazing, remembered planet of Alderaan, Bail Organa. So first off, I'd like to just take a moment for each of us to talk about how we got introduced to this character and really what he means to us. 
Abby, would you like to go first? Sure. So I was a kid when the prequels were coming out. Um, I was, well, he wasn't in Phantom Menace, so that doesn't matter. Um, I was about seven when Attack of the Clones came out and then 10 when Revenge of the Sith came out. And so my kind of kid mind was really only focused on like our big three, Anakin, Padme, Obi-Wan, didn't really care much for any sort of minor background characters. Um, so loving, falling in love with Bail Organa was something that I kind of did as an adult. And I think part of that was because of Rogue One, um, when they announced that Bail Organa would be in Rogue One in some way, shape or form, I kind of like dove into getting back into the prequels and, and reading and learning as much about him as I could, because it was really exciting to have this familiar face in a, in a movie that was going to kind of be uncharted territory as it was, you know. Lucasfilm's first kind of Star Wars spinoff. And that's kind of when I started really loving and appreciating Bail Organa as a character and as a politician for his values and what he's passionate about. And I think it aligns with a lot of my own values. And so I just kind of took that love and, and ran with it because I'm never a person to like anything or anyone casually. If I'm in it, I'm in it to win it. And I am in it to win it with Bail Organa. Oh, that's so sweet to hear. <laughs> uh, okay, so this story of mine, you know, I'm just going to reveal something to the audience for the first time. Uh, so as a kid, now, y'all know, I talk about how generally as an adult, I don't really like the prequels that much. As a kid, I loved them. <laughs> I was completely and utterly obsessed. I always still love the original trilogy more, but I loved all of Star Wars, any single line of dialogue or text, whatever. I loved it. I consumed it so much. And I was very particularly obsessed with the Skywalker family. So, you know, I would read a lot about Leia and I read the Revenge of the Sith novelization over and over again. And I loved Bail Organa in that novel. And I loved him in the film as well. I loved him in Attack of the Clones before that. I think that I was, re I don't know, for some reason, I was really just drawn to this character, you know, this really cool, suave politician who really genuinely believes in peace and diplomacy. I'm somewhat of a pacifist myself, and I feel like some of that might actually have been inspired by Bail Organa and all the material I was reading about him at the time. And then I realized, uh, actually, no, before... When I was a kid, I don't think I fully realized why I was so drawn to this particular character. However, when we first started doing hashtag SW Rep Matters, it, it made sense to me. It absolutely clicked why I liked this particular character. Here was a brown man that looked like me, a dedicated, smart, uh, amazing, wise individual politician who looked like me. Uh, he inspired me. Uh, I'm not, so the actor who plays him, Jimmy Smith is uh, Latinx. He's Latino. Uh, I'm Kurdish. So obviously not the same thing, but still like another Brown person on the screen for me was deeply meaningful and impactful. And I just read so much more about him. I've still loved him in the uh, new era of Canon that we're getting, especially in Leia Princess of Aldron, as we'll be discussing He's just a, just a kind, smart, wonderful man that I aspire to be like. And seeing him as a kid, uh, 
seeing again seeing someone that looked like me <laughs> it really mattered it, it still matters so i think he's a textbook example of why representation matters on the screen oh my gosh that just made my heart grow three sizes that was so sweet <laughs> and representation so matters oh thank you thank you again i want to like I want to like remind audiences like I'm not Latino, I'm Kurdish, but still brown people supporting brown people like that. It, it honestly means a lot. So we are. So uh, for this episode, we will be going through Bail Organa's life that we see in canon content. And we'll just be discussing uh, what we think about uh, his exploits and maybe some lessons we can learn from him as well. So. Starting out, we'll uh, talk about his time in the Galactic Republic. So sometime after the invasion of Naboo, Bail Organa was appointed as Senator of Alderaan, in addition to his position as Viceroy of Alderaan, as he was the husband of Queen Breha Organa. As I understand it, uh, Alderaan is a matriarchy, so I believe that it was Breha's uh, royal line that he married into. During the Old Republic, uh, in the time between The Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones, he was a member of the Loyalist Committee, which was created by uh, our dear Supreme Chancellor Palpatine to maintain the integrity of the Republic and its democracy during the Separatist crisis. And it was during this time that he formed close friendships with Senator Mon Mothma of Chandrilla and Senator Padme Amidala of Naboo. And he was steadfastly opposed to war with the separatists. He was going in line with Aldron's values of peace and diplomacy, but he was increasingly aware that war would be inevitable, but he did everything in his power to stop it. You know, Abby, there are a lot of parallels, I think, and I think many people will argue with, um, senators or representatives or the public at the time of the Iraq war, uh, in the buildup to the Iraq war, who tried to stop it, who tried to say, Hey, maybe we shouldn't actually be going into this region because we're so scared. And maybe Bale was trying to exercise some common sense at the time. Probably. Yeah. There's probably that huge connection there. I mean, we know that George took a lot of influence from the political climate of that time and put it into the prequels. And so I can definitely see that as, as being kind of Bale's role within that of saying, I don't think this is a good idea, but I'm prepared to do this if it's going to be what's going to happen. He was really willing, along with Padme and I believe Mon Mothma, to do what was unpopular at the time when so mm -hmm. many people were scared. As Stephen and I discussed in our previous Chancellor Palpatine episode, there was an atmosphere of fear and suspicion that had people give away more of their rights and liberties. I could very much imagine that Palpatine, who was getting all of this power, created the Loyalist Committee as a farce, as a sort of shield uh, basically a beard for his uh, dictatorship, as it were. <laughs> and uh, he, like, yeah, unfortunately, Bale, like the rest of, uh, you know, the Jedi and the senators who were loyal to the Republic were duped by my dear Uncle Palpy. <laughs> He's too smart. He's just too smart. <laughs> He's just too smart. Yeah. No, but seriously, there was like a deep sincerity there in trying to prevent this terrible conflict for the galaxy. And yeah, I don't know. What do you think was going through Bale's mind at the time? Oh, gosh. Probably just trying to 
encourage as many people as he possibly could that that diplomacy could still be an option. And I think that's when and how he became particularly close with Mon Mothma and Padme Amidala, because they very much so shared those kinds of similar ideals. Um, but I think there's a large part in Bale's head where he's, you know, kind of has to be a little rational and recognize that mm. sometimes things are out of his control. And, um, even if he feels like he's, he's speaking to the masses, there's still going to be so many people who will turn a blind eye and say, well, we're doing this anyways. And I think Bail Organa is the kind of person to be like, okay, you know what, if we're going to war anyway, I'm going to continue to do what I do best, which is promote mm-hmm. peace and promote diplomacy in the face of this conflict and this war, uh, to, to try and reach the goal that I would like us to achieve. Yeah, he was very much a pragmatist. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like Padme, uh, you know, she is also pragmatic, but I'm sure that if she were actually at the Senate and her very devoted representative Banks oh tried to pull that vote for emergency power, she would have been like, uh, guys, what the <laughs> hell? We are not doing this. What are you doing? Stop. <laughs> Stop. And yeah, I feel like unfortunately bail in that scene, in that room in attack of the clones sort of went along with, uh, Palpatine and Massa saying, this is a crisis. The chancellor must have emergency powers. Um, or yeah. You know, I you think know, there's, I th- oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, go ahead. I, I think there's po- probably was some part of Bale, even though uh, he is, you know, the mo- one of the most bravest characters of all time, which I'll talk about that a little bit later. But uh, I think there was some part of him that that had to be a little scared. I mean, the Republic had kind of continued relatively peacefully for, you know, something like a thousand years. And all of a sudden, mm. here's this giant crisis of, of planets leaving the Republic. Yeah. And it's kind of... It was unheard of within his lifetime. So I have to believe that there is some sort of level of, dear God, what is going on? And trying to just put his his faith and his trust in the people that, uh, in the person rather, that they quote unquote elected to be their chancellor. Yeah, he, I feel like Bale's a very humble character. Oh, sure. That he will always, uh, say and acknowledge whenever he feels over his head. And I think that uh, was a prime example during the separatist crisis in the lead up to war. And now we actually got to get into this war. So, you know, he was not obviously involved in many military matters. He was doing a lot of relief missions. And I see how you know here. I, by the way, I only watched the Clone Wars recently, about a year ago. And uh, yeah, I remember this episode where he goes to Toydaria, where he has to work with Representative Binks. <laughs> <laughs> to negotiate with a Toydarian king so the Republic could use their neutral planet to send relief supplies to other planets under siege, like Ryloth. Um, Yeah, I don't remember this episode that well. Do you want to elaborate a bit on it? (laughs) To be honest, I don't remember it that well either because it's been a hot minute since I've watched The Clone Wars. But And Mm -hmm. and kind of also, I know it's a kid show, but... Jar Jar is already kind of insufferable to me enough and yes. is even more so in the show. Um, so I kind of would tune out a lot of the episodes that he was in, but I do remember <laughs> Bale, you know, 
he's a good guy and can put up with he's a lot such of a stuff. Good guy. And it's just like, yes, the honorable representative Binks. And I'm just like, oh, for crying out loud. But I mean, basically what I from what I remember from this episode is is with his work with Jar Jar Binks, unfortunately, he is able mm. to kind of the the Troidarian king says, yeah, you can eventually says, yeah, you can use our planet to um, be kind of like the stop off station. So that way you can get supplies to places like Ryloth. And if I remember correctly, I think they eventually ended up going oh. under the Republic. I can't remember, though. So don't quote me on that. They might have remained mm. control through the rest mm. of the war. Yeah, I think I remember that. And. You know, he was a friend to the refugees, mm-hmm. Bail Organa. He was he would always funnel aid and resources to pe- people in the galaxy that needed it most. And, you know, I feel like what we have here with in the U.S. with USAID obviously does like a lot of really fantastic work in the Red Cross. I actually have a friend that's doing work with the Red Cross now. And, you know, I'm like really proud of him for doing so. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I feel like... We can still like learn from Bale's example in terms of that like sort of compassion for others mm-hmm. like who are far and away from us. You know, he was coming from one of the most privileged planets in the galaxy, Alderaan, which is so large and blissful and rich. And, you know, I, he, I believe uh, from reading from Leia Princess of Alderaan, he and Breha were doing a lot of work with refugees generally mm-hmm. throughout the galaxy and even welcoming them onto Alderaan. So maybe there's something there for us to learn in the U.S. Agreed. <laughs> Bale definitely is the kind of person who uses his privilege to to kind of raise other people up and give them a platform mm-hmm. and give them a home if they need yes. one. And I so admire him for that. Oh, why is he so He's good? He's just so good. He's just so good. <laughs> this this whole so episode good. could be just like three hours of you and I going back and forth. Like, he's just so good. And we would come out of this conversation feeling wholly satisfied. <laughs> oh, my God. He's just too good. So another great thing he did was he was opposed to a bill, uh, again, that we talked about in our Palpatine episode called the Enhanced Privacy Invasion Bill which would have given Palpatine the ability to spy on any Republic citizen who was, quote, suspected of being a separatist. And looking at the somewhat limited information on this bill, it looks like the only person who was in support of this was our dear old Sheev himself, or as you noted in the notes, Sheevy Sheeves. <laughs> it's just the most ridiculous first name for the most evil man on the planet, or the universe, rather. So I have to make fun of it sometimes. Yeah, that's why I call him Uncle Palpy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, other people who were opposed to the bill included uh, Padme and senators from Rhodia and Pantora. I believe Mon would definitely would have been opposed to this bill as well. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, like they had to relent this when they were under a hostage crisis when Cad Bane, a bounty hunter, crashed in the Senate and like yeah, held them all uh, eh, held them all hostage. So. You know, I think that this was another matter of like Bale being as pragmatic as possible, but being forced to step back a bit on some of his ideals when he saw other people were being hurt or threatened mm-hmm. to be hurt. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. It's like, an, I, I can't even say it's disappointing because, again, he's doing what he believes is best in that moment to protect people. He's only being forced into it. Right. He's doing, he's, what is, such a good guy. he's doing what is right at that particular moment. And sometimes that's not always an easy thing to do, especially when it doesn't align with your like long-term goals. 
Right, exactly. However, through a culmination of these various, um, I want to say, like loosening up of his uh, ideals during the time of the Clone Wars, it led to Palpatine garnering too much power so that Bale and Mon Mothma and others founded the Delegation of 2000, which was a committee created by the very loyalists that Palpatine chose himself to preserve the Republican democracy that Palpatine threatened. And y'all, if you haven't checked out the uh, Revenge of the Sith deleted scenes, they are absolutely fantastic. And they touch upon really great political themes that I think would have really enriched the prequel trilogy as a whole. You know, people say, oh, there's too much politics in the prequels. No, there's some really great politics in the prequels. We just need scenes like like these in order to flesh them out more. Agreed. There's a there's a way to do politics in movies and in TV, uh, and those deleted scenes do them right. And so it absolutely breaks my heart that they ended up on the cutting room floor because I think that they would have, like you said, enriched the prequels as a whole. And you know what I the kind of general consensus that I get when talking about those deleted scenes is that everybody wanted them in because they kind of lay the seeds for the rebellion and they were important scenes. So it's an absolute bummer that they got cut. Totally. And, you know, Bale he has to, and I remember that there was this one scene in the Revenge of the Sith novel where Padme tells him, Bale, you need to stay low and organize a rebellion. You need to organize a resistance to Palpatine's rule. And, you know, he does so as a founding member of the Alliance to Restore the Republic. And, you know, he continued his relief missions, albeit more discreetly, but more with the goal of undermining the new empire. And during the events of the book that I mentioned, Leia, Princess of Alderaan, Bale and his wife Breha would often hold meetings on Alderaan with other senders from other planets. And it was really actually somewhat amusing. It was like, so the novel is told through Leia's perspective, right? Mm -hmm. And she thinks that, oh, it's just mom and dad holding these big banquets that they're not inviting me to. They're just throwing parties when, yeah, they wanted to make themselves look like lavish, privileged individuals who were just throwing a rager when really, no, they were holding serious missions about how to undermine Palpatine and his empire. It was so great. Mm -hmm. It's just a classic kind of teenage bit of egocentrism, like, but but you're not doing the things the way that I think you should be doing. And on the inside, they're like, Leia, stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, Leia, chill. Please. We know that you're passionate about this. And oh, you, you read the book, right? I did. Okay. Well, um, do you remember the scene like at the very beginning when Leia brings like thousands of refugees to Alderaan yes. from this plant. Yes, it was from Wobani, which is the, the prison yeah. up, uh, that we see Jin at at the beginning of Rogue One. Yeah, she pretty incredibly kind of helps free tons of these refugees, only just to find out when she gets home that Bale had been working on doing that for months, and she <laughs> screwed up his plans big time. Oh my God. I love, you see, I love that moment so much because it was like textbook Leia. Oh, yeah. It's like, you know, what she would do barging into something and her dad, her dear old dad, like was work on the same thing. And like Leia, this was not the point. For once in your life, don't kick it in a garbage chute and just jump down it. Think. <laughs> <laughs> like, and you know, but Leia really learns from, uh, 
you know, that and other lessons her parents give her. And again, read Princess of Aldron if you haven't yet, people. It is an amazing, amazing book. And I think that what Claudia Gray is able to do so effectively through it is really, you know, we were talking about Leia's teenager dumb and still really learning all of this sort of stuff. But still, she was able to convey how Bale and Breha's example and they're conveying them as real stressed out parents who are working so dedicatedly for this incredibly important cause and the strife that that causes with Leia, who also wants to be part of this, but Bale and Breha knowing the sheer, sheer weight of doing this you know, it's, I, f- I feel like it's inspiring and heartbreaking at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. They they want to encourage her to do what is right and what is good. And they know that in their hearts, the rebellion is what is right and what is good. But she's still a kid. You know, she's 16 years old in Princess of Alderaan and is forced to become, you know, the face of the rebellion and part of Rebel Command by the time she's 19. And I think that that's, mm-hmm. that was their sole goal, was preventing that from ever happening. But sometimes mm-hmm. the Empire creates giant planet-killing machines and they that, that's kind of out of their, their realm of possibility of doing. Um, I, I think mm-hmm. Bale and Brea's... Uh, involvement in the rebellion is genuinely based in their interest of preserving democracy and peace within the galaxy, but also kind of understandably selfishly protecting Leia from ever having to deal with this Mm. war. And she ends up being the person who helps end it. And it all starts with Bail and Brea. Yeah. Um, so I was listening to, uh, our friends over at Sapphic Skywalkers. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, they were talking, it was in their Mon Mothma episode. So I'm attributing this to them. They noted how Padme, Mon, Bale, and Breha were all figures in Leia's life. They were the ones who essentially founded through her, the resistance, like through Leia, taking all of their examples and applying that to her own work, she, yeah, like, you know, the resistance was as much founded by Bale and his cohort as much by Leia. You know what I Mm -hmm. mean? Yeah. I remember listening to that too. And I felt like I had to lay on the floor for a couple of hours and just stare at the ceiling (laughs) because holy moly, did that hit me like a ton of bricks and they're so right. Same. Yeah. Lynn, Nat, uh, Emma, y'all, it like hit the nail on the head with that. Yes. It was just so, yeah, y'all need to check out Sapphic Skywalker because it's an amazing podcast. Uh, so anyway, um, but you know, towards the end of that novel, or, uh, sorry, spoilers, but yeah, I'll just say towards the end of that novel, Leia, Bail and Breha really reach a consensus on what, how Leia can be involved. And we see Bail Organa during Rebels, which takes place after Leia, Princess of Alderaan, meeting with the ghost crew and still carrying out these missions for the rebellion. And, you know, he's working with Ahsoka Tano, who is a fulcrum at the time, gathering, uh, uh, various rebel cells together to form the alliance and he's really working um under the radar throughout all of this despite the ever-present threat of the empire to his home planet and you know we talked about i've talked about this before uh on a previous episode but do you think that bale and breha put their planet 
at unnecessary risk. And don't think about what happens in episode four, by the way. <laughs> right, that, that's very much so out of their control. You know, that's a really good question. And I think that's that's also one that's raised in Leia, Princess of Alderaan. Um, because mm. you have Leia who is like, yes, I think Alderaan should be using their privilege and their resources to help these people. And then you have her, I believe, who is her boyfriend throughout some of the novel, Kier, I can't remember what his last name is, who is very much so like, this is putting Alderaan in danger and we need to protect Alderaan before we protect anybody else. So I think it's kind of just depends on, on, on where you lie. Do you protect your home before anything else? Or do you protect mm-hmm. uh, the good of the good of the rest of the people? Um, I personally think that they did what was right and what they thought was going to work in, in using Alderaan's resources and privileges uh, to help the rebellion. They couldn't have known that a Death Star was going to come in their orbit and blow up their entire right. planet. Uh, but I do understand people like Kier's position being like, I don't want to lose my home. I don't want to lose my family, my friends, because if we don't have that home, how can we help the other people? So I, I, I kind of get both sides of it. Yeah, honestly, I do too. And I really appreciate Kira as a character in Princess of Alderaan because he provides that really crucial point of view about, hey, we're just the regular people who didn't ask to become involved in this rebellion. But again, Bale and Breha were doing what was really necessary for the galaxy at that time because of all the various atrocities that the Empire was committing. Mm -hmm. It's hard. And I think that when we're looking at you know, conflicts in our own world and whether or not to get involved. It's, you know, it's definitely different. It's a different dynamic, but you know, I, I feel this a lot with Syria. I have to say, mm-hmm. you know, I'd love for us in the U S to funnel resources to Syria to help, but at the same time, recognizing the atrocities that came out of the Iraq war and how that contributed to the middle East we see today and getting involved like that just made the problem worse or no create new problems. And knowing that Syria is even more of a quagmire, I find myself conflicted. So interventionism is definitely a very touchy subject. Mm. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, you know, and we see Bale uh, in Rogue One, just like you mentioned, and he is at uh, Rebel Command at Yavin 4, and he sees Jin Erso and her team off. And actually, this is a, uh, I'm jumping ahead to listener questions, but this was a good one. It's from our friend Jason Flat, who's a fellow retro zapper. He says, hey, yay, Bale, yay, new hosts, yay. Yeah. <laughs> um, he says, why do you personally think the Force theme played when Bale appeared on screen for the first time in Rogue One? That musical cue made me cry instantly. What do you think? Why do you think the force theme played there? I don't know. I was wondering the same thing myself because I, I kind of consider myself a little bit of a score nerd. And so I'm constantly picking apart the score, even though I have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, maybe the force theme plays there because Bale, though he is to our knowledge, not uh, one with the force or anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. He plays a larger part in, in the force in the kind of forces will mm. of, of balancing because of his, his work with the Jedi, his taking in Leia, um, and his friendship with Obi-Wan Kenobi. That's kind of where my thought went to at first, because the force theme used to be Ben Kenobi's theme, uh, before it kind of got mm. rebranded. 
And so that might've been why, but at the end of the day, I'm not entirely sure. And could also possibly be because Bale just didn't have his own theme. So Michael Giacchino was like, the force theme, so- theme sounds really good here. So let's <laughs> just put it here. <laughs> no, but there's a reason it sounds good. And I think it's the reason you just said that he has a pivotal place in all of this as the person who raised Leia, as the person who uh, helped create the rebellion at great personal risk to himself and his family and his entire planet. He was doing what was right in that at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, some might call it reckless, but maybe he was really just going with the will of the force. So, you know, his presence at that meeting was absolutely pivotal. And as we see later in the film of Rogue One, he tells Mon Mothma, oh, God, my heart is breaking. <laughs> his last his his last words to Mon are, I would trust her with my life, referring to Leia to go get Obi-Wan Kenobi and get like recruit him to the rebellion. And. Oh, man. Oh, wait, you noted uh, actually this as well, um, that he said to Leia at the end, quote, there's nothing you can't deal with. And his final words before Aldron was blown up were, quote, she lives in regards to his daughter, Leia. Oh, Abby, you're making me feel the feels right <laughs> that now. That is also my other job, aside from annoying dude bros on Twitter, is also making you feel all the feels. <laughs> <laughs> but he retained such amazing dignity at the end of his life. And, you know, for sure he knew that Leia was captured or at least had an inkling of it and knew that the Empire was on its way somehow for him and his planet. And... I, man, I, I know that there is a story um, in from a certain point of view about uh, Breha and what she went through. I actually haven't gone to that uh, part of the book yet. So I, I still just in general can't imagine what the terror that he and his planet were feeling at that time. Right. Yeah. That's, that's where I got those, his final words were, uh, she lives is from, from a certain, from mm. a certain point of view. Mm. Um, and, and basically, they weren't entirely sure whether or not the the planet killer was going to come for them. But the minute that, you know, the sun was kind of blocked, because Alderaan doesn't mm. have moons, um, so all of a sudden having this solar eclipse was the craziest thing. Uh, the minute that he oh, and Brea go God. outside, he knows. Um, and, and basically tells her that this is it. They've come for us. And... Um, she, uh, Brea and Bale kind of, uh, share those final moments of, of thinking of Leia, thinking of their daughter, that she lives, that she's going to continue their mission, that she, mm. Leia is their last hope, their only hope. And, and to be able to kind of yeah. carry that with you, even into your death is remarkable to kind of go in mm. sort of this peaceful as peaceful as you can uh kind of fashion and and believing in in the good of the galaxy even though death is on your front door i am dead (laughs) after that amazing like you you have killed all my feels i you know that meme of like the sad man looking down and just that's me right now (laughs) i'm so sorry (laughs) No, it's okay. It's okay. It just be, it blame George Lucas for creating such an amazing character and getting Jimmy Smith to play him. Oh, Jimmy Smith, what a man! So, 
what a man. He's so great. Um, we got to talk about Bale's legacy. Mm-hmm. You know, he still obviously very much remembered. There are statues of Bale and Breha Organa erected in remembrance of them at the base at Yavin 4, um, the rebel base that is. And he was revered as a martyr during the New Republic. And there's a statue of him on Hosnian Prime, uh, one of the capitals of the New Republic. And in Bloodline, another amazing novel by Claudia Gray, Leia gave a speech about him when, spoilers, <laughs> uh, the Senate had found out about her actual blood lineage to Anakin Skywalker, Darth Vader, but she reiterates to them that her real father is Bail Organa, the one who raised her, the one who taught her how to be the amazing person she is. And I was wondering, Abby, if you could read this quote yeah, we yeah. have here. So this is Leia talking about Bail. He taught me so much about politics, leadership, and war. But above all, he taught me that no price is too great to pay for our ideals. Bail Organa was willing to die if that meant the empire would fall. He believed in the new republic we have been able to create and in the promise of fair, equal government for everyone under the law. Oh, (laughs) he was so good. He was just the best. But, you know, because he was so good, I think we should talk about some of the lessons that can be learned from Bail Organa. So I was thinking about this and in relation to what's happening to in American politics today. And I think that now this may seem like a bit um, extreme or a bit far-fetched, but maybe not to a large portion of this country right now, particularly people like myself, like you, Mm -hmm. I believe, in the resistance in the Trump era. So what does Bale say about persistence in the face of the deconstruction of democratic norms and the potential face of tyranny, do you think? I mean, he kind of demonstrates it throughout the life that we get to see him have on screen. He's appointed to this loyalist committee to uphold democracy and continues to be part of that loyalist committee, even though it's kind of going against what Palpatine created it for, because he's like, you put me in this position to uphold our beliefs and I'm going to uphold our beliefs until the day that I die. Um, and, And he does. And I think, I think that kind of bail in terms of persistence in the face of tyranny is kind of really summed up in that in part of that speech that Leia gives the but above all he taught me that no price is too great to pay for our our ideals is so important right um holding on to what we believe is good and right even when people are telling us that it's wrong or that it's too difficult to Mm. continue um to to Mm. borrow my favorite uh Marvel Cinematic Universe quote from Peggy Carter. It's it's that no yes kind of thing, and and I think that Bale really encompasses that, um, especially in the face of of tyranny. Ah, uh, yes, so glad you mentioned uh, Peggy. She is also the best. So I love her so much. <laughs> She's so good. Um, but yeah, like, you know, he's someone who's really driven not by power at all, but for the common good. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, in one of the most privileged positions in the entire galaxy. He's basically a king and a senator on one of the richest planets. And he uses all of his resources for the actual common good. And he's incredibly humble. And, you know, it's like, 
you know, I'm almost tempted to call him like almost too perfect of a character, <laughs> but I don't care. He's amazing and wonderful and he does deal and he makes with mistakes oh, as sure. well. He accidentally leads, uh, lends uh, Palpatine too much power. But again, because he's trying to do good, that's someone. So maybe there's something, you know, a almost negative lesson to be drawn from Bale of what not to do is to always be wary, be more wary of what we can do and maybe like act earlier and not think that we have to do simply what everyone else says in this particular moment, lest it lead to worse things down the line. And I'm certain that Bale regrets like, you know, his potential role in Palpatine's rise to power. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. I bet you it keeps him up at night all the time. Yeah. Oh, totally, totally. And yeah, like he, again, he utilizes his privilege to make up for past mistakes politically and personally. And through that, he incurs risk on himself. So I think it just conveys how if you really want to resist a political movement that you genuinely disagree with, there has to be a certain level, particularly if you're an activist, mm-hmm. obviously, if you're an activist, you have to be willing to incur that discomfort and that potential lack of security. Um, obviously, don't do anything illegal. We're not <laughs> sure. saying that. Like, you know, just like be willing to be to stand as a martyr potentially for your ideas, not an actual martyr <laughs> to be killed or anything. But, you know, like in the eyes of the public, in terms of reputation, you know, like be willing, honestly, like just like I'm going to quote from Albus Dumbledore, <laughs> even though like Harry Potter is like kind of dead to me, um, <laughs> you know, like do what's right and not what's easy. And I think Bale absolutely personifies mm-hmm. that. Plant yourself like a tree and say, no, you move. Absolutely. Exactly. Who who said that, by the way? Peggy Carter. Yes. (laughs) Uh, All right. So that will be the end for our like uh, main topic discussion of our politician spotlight of Bail Organa. But let's listen to what some of our listeners have to say. So we just mentioned uh, her earlier on her podcast, Sapphic Skywalkers, is our friend Emma Knight. And her email reads, hey, guys, I was just wondering if you think Bail Organa is capable in terms of being a ruthless politician slash rebel leader. We've seen glimmers of a certain ruthlessness from Mon Mothma, and of course, Leia isn't afraid to fight dirty if the situation calls for it. But I have to wonder, is this something she picked up from Bale? How do you think Bale would showcase his ruthlessness? Also, do you think he has a cape room in the Tanta V3? Always looking fab, Batman. <laughs> <laughs> Super excited for this conversation. So glad Abby is part of the crew. Oh, Thank you so much for your question, Thank you so much for your question, Emma. We heartily appreciate it. I mean, obviously, as a cape room, I mean, like, of course, I mean, gentlemen, he has a cape room. He has five. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. It's not just Lando who can rock the cape, y'all. Like Bale, Bale did it first chronologically. Um. Let's remember that. (laughs) (laughs) Still love Lando, though. We're still Lando fans. Yeah. In terms of like him being potentially ruthless. Based on what we know about him, I genuinely feel like Bale doesn't have like a mean bone in his body. I feel like he will always look for a diplomatic solution, even when it seems like uh, the most um, unrealistic at the time. And he'll leave the fighting to others to do. So I'm willing to imagine that Leia got her ruthless uh 
some of her ruthless nature from her mother. What do you yeah, think? I think that's a possibility too. I think in Princess of Alderaan, there's little hints of of Brea kind of being like, "Yeah, I was a little bit of a rebel as a kid when I was your age." And like one time, she tells Leia that I think every girl needs a little scoundrel in her life, which is a nice nod to Han. Um, <laughs> right. I. So I will say this to the ends of the earth. Bail Organa is Leia Organa's father, period. Mm -hmm. But I do think that Mm -hmm. Leia does inherit a lot of things from her birth parents. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think her willingness to kind of fight dirty and and her temper do come a little bit from Anakin Skywalker. Um, Of course. I mean, in that it's kind of like a nature versus nurture debate. Like, was she born with this? Mm -hmm. Was it, you know? instilled in her by her adoptive parents. But I kind of have to agree that I don't know if I can see Bale kind of getting to a level of ruthlessness. Maybe if something like threatened Leia, I bet you he would go to the ends of the earth to protect her. And if that meant kind of having to sacrifice an ideal, he would do it because of the love he has for his daughter. Totally. If something threatened Leia or Mm, Brea, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we've got another email from another uh, Retro Zapper uh, friend of ours, uh, Mike, or at Skymaller on Twitter. Hey, fellas. Hey, it's not just fellas anymore, Mike. Yeah. Um, got one for you. Bale is a great man and honorable politician as shown in the prequels and from what we know in Rebels, Rogue One, etc. So my question is, while he presumably worked up to uphold certain ideals in the Galactic Senate until its dissolution, he had no qualms about establishing and aiding an undergrow- a growing underground rebellion. This rebellion, though noble, was probably technically illegal under the Empire. How do you feel about his double duty and how does it translate to our real-world politics, i.e. what a politician's today were outed as aiding illegal or questionable resistance like hashtag resistance only real um well first off mike i know you want a revolution buddy you tell us like all the time in your emails but it's not gonna like happen i hope it doesn't actually happen like let's please no armed conflict please (laughs) um like uh yeah i think uh i mean i think it was just you know, he was seeing the sheer evils being committed during the empire, like genocide, slavery, stripping planets of their resources entirely. And I think what it was pretty clear, what was morally right was not legally right at the time. And that's happened so many times throughout history. Yeah. I, I think that's really what it is at the end of the day is it's, I don't think he was sacrificing any sort of him part of himself in in becoming part of an underground rebellion. I think he was following what he knew in his heart was right and and doing that to the T. And if that meant doing what was illegal, then that was just going to be the case. Yeah, totally. And we've got one last question via Twitter from our friend Shannon, I believe at Shannon Joy. Uh, she just asks, if Bale had become Chancellor instead of Palpy and Attack of the Clones, would the Clone War still have happened? Abby, you want to yeah, take this first? I don't know. I've been thinking about this question all day because... <sighs> There were already conflicts rising before Palpatine ever became chancellor. There was already people who were having issues with how the Republic was was being run before Palpatine became mm. chancellor. He just kind of, you know, took hold of that and had his hands in, in both sides of the war. I, I think 
if it did happen, if the Clone Wars did continue to happen with with Chancellor Bail Organa, which that would just be the dream, um, it would have had a very <laughs> different outcome. Um, mm. There probably would have been a lot more of that pursuing peace through diplomacy than through conflict and war. Um, but I don't know. That's I, I've been thinking about this all day, and I can't come to the decision of the Clone Wars would still happen just differently or they wouldn't happen at all. Yeah, I think that the Clone Wars as a whole was orchestrated by my beloved Uncle Palpy. I love him for how manipulative he is, even though he's so evil. And I think that if you take Palpatine out of that equation of not being Chancellor, you still have potential for a civil war to happen, but Palpatine wouldn't be at the strengths of the Republic, presumably creating laws and regulations that would be more punitive on uh, planets that try to leave or left the Republic. And I think that you wouldn't have seen as much animosity mm. perhaps from the separatists towards the Republic. So it's difficult to say I'm on, I think I'm willing to say that the clone wars would not have happened or at the very least, if you had a conflict, it would not have, would not have been anywhere near as, um, galaxy engulfing as the actual clone wars were and you know i think they would have been resolved relatively peacefully because bail organa is just the best (laughs) he should have been elected chancellor although no it wasn't like him who was up for election in the phantom menace it was actually bail antilles Mm -hmm. um that was so confusing, by the way. Do you remember I do, that? And I, if I remember correctly from Legends, which I was never like a Legends fiend, I, I thought it was kind mm-hmm. of retconned that, yes, that was Bail Organa, but then he married Brea Organa and took her last name. Either that or I'm confusing it with a fan fiction I read one time, <laughs> which is a very <laughs> real possibility. But yeah, it, it, it was Bail Antilles and now Bail Antilles and Bail Organa are related, but they're separate people. Mm-hmm. Right, right, totally. Yeah, I think that Bail Antilles is actually Breha's relative. Oh, and that's what it was. Yeah, and like uh, our Bail, like married into that family. Apparently, the names Bail and Antilles are just very common. They're basically the John Smith of the Star Wars and universe. Yeah, and Antilles is kind of a galaxy wide name because you also have Wedge Antilles, and he's from Corellia. So. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Is he still from Corellia? I thought so. I don't I know. I'm not a Wedge stand. I'm. <laughs> Yeah, I know. We'll have to ask some of the people from Toxie yes. Station about that. <laughs> <laughs> or like from Rogue Quadrant. <laughs> All right. So that is going to do it for episode 56 of our main topic, Bail Organa, Politician Spotlight. And uh, we will be moving on to Bantha Fodder, in which Abby and I will be discussing whatever is on our minds in Star Wars politics or otherwise. And But first off, I want to list our wonderful, amazing patrons whose contribution to the show keep us going and help us make the show the best quality it can be for you, the listeners. So uh, we would like to give a very special thank you to Brad Tracy, Isaiah Leslie, Cheston Lee, Andrew Siner, Connie She, Sarah Strain, BJ Smith, Justin Day, Jessica Shitara, Sarah Smith, Jared Cantor, Tish Wells, Sean Mahan, and Nick DeColandria. Thank you all so, so very much. Your patronage means the world to us. And now we're going to talk Bantha Fodder, where we talk uninterrupted whatever's on our mind, Star Wars, politics, otherwise. Abby, as uh, this is your only second show, no, this is your first show where you get to give a Bantha Fodder. So 
Yeah. So why don't you go first? Um, so I just, I want to preface this with, um, I'm not going to get into specific details of Avengers infinity war, but I will talk about it briefly. So if that's a little too spoilery, spoilery for you, feel free to skip over my part, but I promise no in-depth details. So my fodder this week has to do with certain articles that have been coming out after blockbuster movies lately. You know, the insert character here is the true villain of insert movie here articles. We saw this for the first time after The Last Jedi um, with the author of the article claiming that Poe is the true villain of the movie because he makes a mistake here and there and uh, takes issue with the fact that Holdo, uh, excuse me, shows poor leadership and refuses to tell a soul about her plan. And y'all talked about this in the episode on uh, Poe Dameron, Amelin Holdo, and gender politics with the wonderful Kate Sanchez. So I won't get into that too much. Um, but just yesterday, the same person who wrote that article wrote another one uh, titled Star Lord is the true villain of Avengers Infinity War. Quill in Infinity War has a genuine human reaction to an emotionally charged event, and somehow he's the villain of the story. Never mind the giant purple genocidal titan who's hell-bent on having all the power in the universe at his disposal. Uh, so a lot of people, understandably, were really upset about this and, and called the writer out and cited that this is not the first time they've done this, and it's really uncool uh, to keep pushing these headlines that are frankly kind of harmful. Um, some people threw around that these articles might be a bit sarcastic, but even so it's really not that funny. Uh, and I say that as a person who just thrives on sarcasm. Um, but there are a ton of issues with pushing this narrative that heroes who make honest mistakes are suddenly villains of their stories, but I will stick with just this. It says a lot that when male characters display emotions that aren't solely anger or have a moment of quote unquote weakness, Instead of toughening up or bottling their feelings, they get labeled as the real villain of a story. I'm not saying these male characters are suddenly the champions of overcoming toxic masculinity because they have feelings and express them, but it's a step. It's important to see male characters be allowed to have a complex range of emotions and display them properly because, inf uh, because fiction influences reality. People look up to these characters. Kids look up to these characters. Little boys are looking up to Star-Lord, for better or for worse. And seeing this narrative that male characters are suddenly villains for having feelings is going to further perpetuate toxic masculinity and end up hurting those kids in the long run. And that is my fodder for this week. Oh my God, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Like, as you know, as y'all might see me on social media, I'm also angered and very bothered for these headlines for all of the various reasons that Abby just listed so very eloquently. Thank and oh, thank, well, thank you. you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I have a very light fodder this week. It's about environmentalism. Since I was a kid, I've been an, envir I've been an environmentalist. Uh, this is something really inspired to me through my mom, who's a botanist, uh, has her PhD in horticulture. And, you know, me and my family, we just really love the environment and the natural world. And I'm a big advocate for climate change action, for uh, pollution removal, pollution cleanup. And, you know, in the past couple of years, or really since the, the last year, really, since 
during this administration, um, sometimes I may feel a bit down about the environmentalist movement and how much we're able to do. Because I remember during President Obama's term and having the clean power plan and his directives towards the EPA and other agencies to do more, I was so hopeful then. And also seeing how much the renewable industry was growing then, I thought, yeah, we're on the upward trend. Then the 2016 election happened, and Trump and Scott Pruitt and others have been making so many quote-unquote promises to undo the quote-unquote damage that the EPA has been doing in somehow stripping people of their jobs that were going to die anyway. The coal industry is dying a death of its own that's not exacerbated by these new policies. Excuse me by these new policies coming into play. It's really about the natural gas industry. It's about the renewable industry gaining steam and people turning to alternative and cheaper energy sources and cleaner sources as well. You know, maybe there is a role in there, but again, when you look at the statistics and the actual, uh, like factors that are going into it, the coal industry, unfortunately was going to die like in the United States, uh, for a while now. And, you know, it's sad, but that's where we are right now. But yeah, like during the Obama administration, I was hopeful. I really believed that we were on this upward trend towards a cleaner future. And then this administration happened. And so for a while, I sort of felt sad about it. I'd just, you know, be watching a nature documentary about plastic pollution in the ocean and the degradation of coral reefs and the continuing upward trend of uh, greenhouse gases that are going to get us past that well and above that um, two degrees Celsius uh, increase by 2100. And it's terrifying. And, you know, sometimes I feel depressed about it. However, a couple of things, I've been doing a couple of things recently and been thinking about how much the local level matters, how much people in cities and towns and rural areas taking care of their environment really matters. It can really build up. This past Saturday, I was doing a cleanup event with uh, Virginia State Senator Scott Suravel. Uh, my friend Phil, who's a, basically his chief of staff, invited me and I helped uh, with some of the organizing for it. And we had something like 30 volunteers come that day from like nine to five. And we were cleaning up this river in Alexandria and we were getting out ton, like basically tons of uh, trash and bicycles and carts and all this random pollution. And it was insane. But at the same time, we were seeing beavers and turtles and fish and geese and ducks and like so many animals in this ecosystem who honestly were starting to come out more. We were seeing it while we were taking this trash out. And it was amazing. And there were people passing by this river who were noting, whoa, that that's happening. I had no idea about this and wanted to come help for another event. And are starting to look into other events that they might be able to do. And it made me hopeful. It made me think if we can really start locally, like with these sort of cleanup events and other things like sporadically throughout the country, the environmentalist movement will continue to be strong. I mean, this is happening now. This is really my own self-realization about it and that not everything has to be all doom and gloom. Renewables are still on the upswing. So many people are buying solar and uh, investing in wind. And despite the Trump administration's recent 
uh, call or like a policy of a tax on solar panels, that's only going to be a short term dent in the industry. There's still so much that's happening and so many other countries around the world that are taking the threat of climate change seriously. And hopefully, I'm actually very hopeful that we're only on a backward swing now. Uh, This may just be me as an annoying optimist, but it's genuinely how I feel and genuinely what I've seen. So I'm hopeful. So if you're an environmentalist like me who's depressed about what this administration is doing, continue to focus on what we can do going forward and we can start small and grow outward. And that can have a real lasting, impactful effect. That's my bantha fodder. Heck yeah. I love your optimism on that. Thank you. Makes me want to go out there and clean up my neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, maybe you should. Like get your friends to do it as well. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And that's going to do it for episode 56 of Beltway Banthas, our Bail Organa politician spotlight. Abby, this was such a wonderful discussion, don't you think? It was. I feel really fulfilled. My heart is full right now. (laughs) Mine too, because Bail is the best. He is. Um, Yeah. So just some housekeeping measures. Please remember to rate and review us on iTunes. It really does a lot to help the show and boost our numbers. And more people need to be listening to our new hosts, Abby and Brittany. You need to listen to their wonderful voices going forward. We need more people listening to them too. Uh, And just FYI, next week, I will be posting our hashtag SWRepMatters panel that we did a couple of weeks ago here in D.C. out of the fallout of Universal FanCon which turned into Universal FamCon. If you want to know what happened, just look on Twitter. It's, uh, yeah. And uh, speaking of Twitter, you can follow us there, at Beltway Banthas. And you can follow me on Twitter, at SwaraSaleh1. That's S-W-A-R-A-S-A-L-I-H-1. Abby, where can they follow you? You can follow me on Twitter. And I'm also going to plug my Instagram because I want more likes on Instagram, y'all. Um, you can find <laughs> me on both of those platforms at Abby Gleason. And that's Abby with a Y and Gleason with an E-A. I know some people get a little confused and think it's spelled like Donald Gleason's name, but it's not. Um, and yeah, that's where you can find me. <laughs> and that's going to do it for this week's episode, y'all. Thank you so much for listening and may the force be with you. Always. Laugh it up, fuzzball. 